the way that you actually use your economic incentives or whatever material benefits you do give your, to your constituency, these are infused with your ideology. And that is why these two categories are not mutually exclusive. Ideology is a practice at the end of the day. Hi, this is Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to the TCF World Podcast. I'm joined in Lebanon with Sima Khadar and Renad Mansour. And today we're going to talk about a question uh, that, that comes up time and again as we observe new movements, political movements and militias that take power around the Middle East. And the question is, what really is the interplay between ideas and stuff, between the kinds of uh, services and patronage and money that new militia groups and new political movements gather up and distribute to their followers, and the other dimension, the one that usually attracts attention uh, outside uh, the Middle East and among their rivals, which is their ideological content. Um, so let's, let's start with, uh, in a way, with the news, uh, which is uh, the, um, the outcome of, of the Iraqi elections and the new actors that it's sort of uh, fully established. Uh, Renad, tell us just a little bit about what is the state of play of these hybrid ideological uh, uh, patronage actors that are known as the Popular Mobilization Front. At the end of the day, it's about power, whether that's ideational power or sort of more pragmatic, rational, you know, interest power. Um, the fighters, what motivates fighters, what motivates the leaders uh, is, is to increase their influence, to increase their power, and also to increase their capabilities and legitimacy. And that's what you've seen. So I don't think, you know, the way that, that this is framed often between whether it's ideological or whether it's street pragmatic or, or rational or economic, I don't think it's zero sum. I think there's a bit of both. But the, like the reason why we care about some of these groups, so when, you know, when we look yeah. at Iraq today, there's a whole bunch of groups that have fighters and they're corrupt and they're violent and they steal from the state yeah. and about most of these groups no one cares the ones we are concerned about yeah. are the ones that have a sharp and you know to some observers perspective problematic uh, ideological agenda yeah and, and that's because there's an ideological agenda on the other side as well that feeds into this. So certainly you view these groups as, you know, for example, in Iraq, the Hajj al-Shaabi is part of Iran Shia Crescent, right? And so it, it fits into the mold to say that they're driven by ideology um, and they're driven by expanding Shia power. Uh, but, you know, and, and to some extent at different times that may be a motivating factor. But at the same time, what I've seen in my years kind of um, with, you know, hanging out with these movements, tracing these movements, talking to these movements, is at the, at the end of the day, these are human beings who are looking for jobs, who are looking for uh, some kind of status in society, who are looking to feel part of society where, you know, employment has a problem, where money is a problem. So I think, you know, and, and it's not just the Shia groups. You know, even if you look at ISIS, right, like the most extreme example of this, there's a lot of thought to, I think, saying that ISIS's motivations were economic. And you, they could have instrumentalized religion, you know, Salafi jihadism, to kind of keep their people, like, as a glue to keep people together. But in the day, their practices were based on these kind of desire for power and influence and increasing their capabilities. From what you've observed, do you think ideology actually doesn't matter at all? Like, when a young Shia recruit, a young Shia poor, poor person from southern Iraq mm. decides they want to volunteer in the fight against ISIS. Why, why would they go to Asab al-Haq, which mm. is mm. listed as a terrorist group by the United States and has a clearly articulated agenda of 
transnational extremism or maximalism, why would they pick that group as opposed to one of the many other choices they have, which are equally Shia in their flavor, but really do have a different ideological identity and, and agenda instead of goals? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, um, but you know, you're, you're assuming, again, this mutually exclusive uh, idea. In, in 2014, when the call was out to mobilize, a lot of the fighters went to whatever office was closest to them or whatever person was offering them the best deals, and they kind of moved through, so maybe their family was a member in there, or they had connections to that group. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that explain why a fighter decides to join one group or the other. For example, I'll give you an example. So the Jaish al-Mahdi, the biggest army split after, you know, after 2008, there's many people who are loyal to Sadr, but because the Sadr's movement stopped paying, they had to go to other groups, right? Now, that doesn't mean that at the end of the day they're not loyal to Muqtada, right? Even though, let's say, something like Sheikh Qais Khazali, the leader of Asa'ab al-Haq, is, is kind of an opponent to Muqtada at some point. So within so the that, ranks... But doesn't that then contradict the argument you're making? You're, 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 on the one hand, you're saying ideology doesn't matter so much, it's... You know, uh -huh, you go to who uh -huh. you can pay, and then in the next breath, yeah, you're yeah, saying yeah. the loyalty, no, the, they have this loyalty but no, but that, I'm, that, that, that continues no matter example, who's paying them. So the then example. the loyalty does matter. Right, right. So there's the, this idea that... that so loyalty to the money, when, you mean. So, so, so essentially, I mean, the way I think this works is, is also pretty simple, which is that uh, people are complicated creatures. They pursue their material self-interest, but they also care about their convictions. And when they're not in conflict, they'll pursue multiple things uh, at the same time. But when they're in conflict... So when there comes a time when this uh, Sadr loyalist who's in the employ of a rival militia finds that they either have to risk their lives for their beliefs or sell out those beliefs entirely for a small salary, at that moment they will make a choice and often the choice they'll make is the ideological one. Again, it's not zero-sum, and at different times, ideology might be more, and at some times, material interest might be more. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is it's not that argument I'm making is contradictory. It's that putting clear-cut sort of cases as this is ideology or that this is material interest and separating them as, as you know, we're trying to do today, that will create contradictory examples. So it's the cases that are contradictory, not the argument. Seema, you've been following uh, Hezbollah uh, as it's expanded its military footprint and its recruitment during the war in Syria uh, and, and has now sort of reached a new plateau in terms of international power, uh, military power, and, and now since these last elections in Lebanon, political power. How do you see this relationship playing out when you look at the ways in which Hezbollah consolidates its appeal to its own constituents? Um, okay, I'm going to resolve an issue that you were both talking about, and I do, I think it's closer to what Renad was trying to explain, is that, so when we talk about ideology, I think the studies of ideology has developed so much, but the way that we talk about it has not. So you say ideology, and the first thing that comes to mind is the power of ideas. When actually, what happens is that the way that you actually use your economic incentives or whatever material benefits you do give your, to your constituency, these are infused with your ideology. And that is why these two categories are not mutually exclusive. Ideology is a practice at the end of the day. And the only reason why someone would have that level of loyalty is not just because someone's going and giving you a piece of paper and, and money, but actually it is what kind of institutional structure exists around how that money comes to you and what is the benefit that you're getting out of this. Are you having some sort of vertical mobility because of that or upward mobility? Um, like Hezbollah, the way that they do give their services to their constituency creates this, this loyalty that goes beyond just the material because 
the manner through which they're giving you that material benefit, it sort of spreads family values, it spreads community values, it spreads a, a feeling of protection, a feeling that even when, let's say, Hezbollah is not doing very well, eventually they will pick us up, they will take care of us. And I think that comes also with Hezbollah, what really benefits them is that they have a good track record in that sense. So they intervene in Syria, they sort of falter with their, with their constituency for a while, and then they prove to them that it is only through patience that you will eventually realize that we do have like a grander goal in mind. Um, and that we were always reached to victory, well, irrespective. And, and I mean, we're, you know, I don't think any of us is, is coming at this from a zero-sum perspective. Mm. And I, I would actually throw in a third poll to this, which I think is actually really crucial, which is the way this interplay, and particularly the importance of ideas, changes during times of war. So in, the, in an active conflict that broke out after ISIS took over almost half the country, that became a very different context than, than the sort of stable yeah, context Yeah, you go previously. into survival and, mode. And, and same with Lebanon. I mean, you know, there were sporadic wars, but in, for Hezbollah's community now, there's been a almost six-year steady involvement in the war in Syria. And I think during those periods where you are mobilized, not just for a month or a week, but you're mobilized year in, year out for war, and, and burying your war dead, uh, figuring out how to live with the, with the lost income and the grief. It's so that you can guarantee that your constituency remains loyal if war were to come. I mean, so this is kind of in preparation for in times of war, you don't go only in survival mode for the sake of just surviving, but rather surviving for the sake of, for the sake of your community surviving as well. They feed into one another. Well, so let's talk about the mechanics of constituency building. So here we, so we sort of laid, laid the table out with the avenues, the different competing or reinf mutually reinforcing avenues by which uh, militant movements rile up and then uh, deepen the loyalty of their followings. What sorts of processes and tools uh, have these militant movements, the, these are all Shia movements that we're talking about, developed in the, in, during these times of, of recent conflict uh, to, to, to create an enduring pool of people? Or would you or not say it's not even an enduring pool? No, I mean, very clearly, uh, since 2014 with the establishment of the popular mobilization units, but even before with the different sort of armed groups, paramilitary groups, militias that were out, um, they had constituents, right? I mean, Better, for example, as an organization has existed since 1982 with its own fighters and the families of their fighters and, and, and the patronage networks. And that's the key. Nurin Maliki, the former prime minister, he was most successful in creating these patronage networks, talking to the sort of southern Shia tribes, bringing sheikhs on board, um, and really creating creating these networks of, of loyalty. Sure, I, you know, what we call ideology, as, as, as has been said, uh, works, you know, to create an enemy, to bring people together, to, you know, say there's a Sunni threat or there's some other threat helps bring you together. But at the end of the day, whether a fighter chooses one group or the other is based more on these patronage networks, on history, family history, as well as uh, material incentives. Uh, and we've seen fighters go from one to the other because simply it was a job. Well, so what, what happened to the hundreds of thousands at their peak of short-term volunteers yeah. who, who signed up and got paid now that the war is effectively over and probably two-thirds of the peak number of, of 
of mobilized fighters have been demobilized. First of all, it's important to note that the, you know, the PMUs are no longer just a security institute. They're also political and economic institutions. So there's a lot of employment opportunities there. But their fundamental task right now is to find employment for the tens of thousands, right? So the ideology isn't just enough. They need to find these, these people jobs. They need to pay money for the families of the martyrs who have, who have died. It's not just enough to say, you're a martyr. Your son, for example, has given his life up. Congra you know, we, we should remember that. That's not enough to these families. These families are demanding material uh, goods and, and money. So, I mean, as, as someone who are building these patronate networks, as the leaders of these armed groups, they need to really take this into consideration moving forward. Did they stay? Uh, like, in the elections that just happened in Iraq, did the fighters vote for the groups they fought for? I mean, it, 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 there hasn't been that kind of data coming out yet, but I mean, very clearly, I'd say the Hashid defied a lot of expectations. I mean, getting 47 seats, coming second, it was, was much more than most people were predicting for the PMUs. And part of that, you know, I, I spoke to m many of the PMU leaders before, and I asked them, like, how are you mobilizing the vote? You know, how are you going to get votes? And they said, we're going to do a few things. Mainly, we're going to focus on our fighters, the families of our fighters, their families, martyrs and their families, and that's what they really focused on, right? All around, and, and, and they came out because they had this motivation to come out because they know if these guys move into government, that they might get a job in the end. Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, this is Thanasi Kambanis in Lebanon with Renad Mansour and Sima Hadar. Uh, Renad was just talking about the, uh, the, the way in which these uh, Iraqi militias transitioned from uh, a sort of war footing uh, to political footing. And I just wanted to ask one follow-up question about that. You said you don't know yet how these people voted, but that the commanders really appealed to them on the basis of supporting martyrs and survivors. I'm wondering, is, is that actually maybe more compelling than political ideas? Like when we think about ideology, we often think about like a political platform or like a religious uh, goal. Uh, but what, what I heard you describing sounds maybe like, you know, um, like a band of brothers ideology, right? Mm. It's like, like what binds these people to the Hashid? It's that they fought and died together and, that, and the survivors, that they are joint survivors of a shared experience. And what links them is not just receiving payments, let's say martyr payments from the old unit of, of their dead son or, or husband, but a sort of fellowship that, that doesn't even need to have religious or ideological content because it, it's such a powerful uh, fraternity in of, in of itself. Yeah, sure. I mean, to some extent, to be a sort of PMU vet these days in Iraq is a high social status. To say, you know, if you're from Basra or Amara or somewhere in the south, to say, I fought Daesh in Mosul or in Fallujah. I mean, is this like the legions of foreign wars, it's, like drinking hall you would see in it's, rural it's America? A high, it's a high status in, in, in society. Um, and, and, and so those who are Hashid, they, they'll proudly say that, that they're still Hashid, you know, and, and, and as one leader told me, once you're a Hashid, you're always a Hashid, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like that's how they view it. Now that's, but there's this assumption though, and I, I think there's a bit to push back on this because there are also fighters who have returned who are not receiving benefits and who are now moving against the Hashid or speaking against the Hashid. There is a small percentage of that that people I think requires more research. So those who are not receiving the same benefits, those who have been injured and don't feel like they're being treated well, are, are kind of moving against it. Is that a transactional objection though? Or are they just upset that they're not yeah, being taken because care of? Like, you know, if you're, if you're, not if, because they object to the buddy, militarization of society. Hey, right? any, if your buddy, for example, uh, was injured and you're injured and he's receiving treatment and you're not, mm. ideology's out the door. <laughs> Um, I mean, based on the experience, I think Hezbollah is a successful and a dangerous case of how good they are at creating um, a very disciplined constituency. I think it's dangerous because it, it, it creates a very distinct and sectarian constituency, so it differentiates them from other sectors of society. I think it's four things, and they, they go full circle eventually. So one is a basic good understanding of the grievances that people have, and eventually you can probably start telling people what their grievances should be or sort of you, you drive the narrative, and I'll, I'm gonna explain more about that. So another thing which I will, I can't emphasize this enough, I mean, I know ideology really matters, and ideology is discourse, blah, blah, but organization, strong organization, a disciplined constituency to have a number of organizations, if you're building a patronage network, is that you have to take care of the education so that you can actually take care of the um, vocational sector and then from that to actually take care of the martyrs of the families and then to actually give services to the martyrs. So usually it's like all the services feed into one another to create an environment where everybody's provided for. To do that is to create a state-like structure because this is what a state usually does, and that's why it's very successful. Strong states are successful at that. Um, so you need to close all the loopholes of what grievances exist, and then you look at dignity, and you look at humiliation, and then you give a sense of pride and whatnot. Um, and I think what's very powerful about Hezbollah is a very simple formula. You promise something, and you do it. It's, and because you have that strong organization, you can do that. So sometimes promises become guarantees. And this has been something that um, has been in the discourse of Hezbollah rhetorically um, since they started. And now they use, they use the importance of the symbolic value of that word because their community knows what, the, what they're talking about when they use it. Um, and the last thing I would add is definitely, it's not only religion for Hezbollah now. Um, and I think, Thanasi, you've spoken about that a bit, which is like a resistance ideology, uh, which has become more powerful than just the, the, the Islamic aspect of the organization. Um, so, I mean, resistance itself becomes something that identifies that community and differentiates it from others. Simply put, people want to be taken care of and people want something to believe in. Uh, one of the things that's very interesting to me about this phase of Hezbollah's development is how they've managed to successfully parlay their expansionist participation in the war in Syria. And I mean, you know, when I look at the, the, the groups Renat is talking about and I look at Hezbollah, I feel like in some ways I'm looking at two very similar entities at, at different periods of their history. In Iraq, everyone who is a constituent of the, of the Hashid is so poor. They're the Mustadafin, the dispossessed, who are still suffering from decades of privation. And so for people like this, a salary of a few hundred dollars can be instrumental in, in changing their life. We're talking about people on the edge of survival. In Hezbollah's community, that's how it was 40 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, when you know the Shia belt of misery uh, was the fertile recruiting ground for all kinds of revolutionary Islamist groups. But now their constituency is, is largely a bourgeois 
well-off, middle-class, successful, powerful group. These are people who their entire adult life, they've been politically dominant and well-to-do with job opportunities, with a, a sense of political, they have political rights. They have more political rights maybe than anyone else in, in, their, in their country. Uh, and at that point, how did Hezbollah avoid so far being boxed in by the loss aversion of their mm. of their clientele because 30 years ago you'd say you know you're desperate and hungry and here we give you a place to belong now you're you have a great life and then they're essentially saying we want you to put this at risk for a war in another country it's for an organizational survival interest and i and i think we forget that this i mean the people that are my age and are hezbollah or hezbollah supporters i mean they grew up in an environment where their parents had to suffer through reaching that social status or reaching that educational status to be able to provide for their kids eventually now that the grievance isn't there what you do is that you continue to dominate the narrative of what the grievance should be which is like against america resistance is very important but so, but so you think and that like a, a 20 year old hezbollah supporter is convinced that even though things appear very comfortable and secure and stable for them that in fact it all could be taken away in a, in a second's notice by american violence or by some kind of no because they're part of this entire organizational structure they still benefit from it they don't necessarily benefit mostly from the state institutions but rather from hezbollah's institutions so they know if you were to take away one element of that organizational structure things would falter and they don't want that to happen but i mean i'm not saying that there aren't people that have been more vocal recently about hezbollah's intervention and even even now with all their victories in syria and the success that they talk about but it's still Still, um, I think these family connections, these family associations that exist in these communities are much stronger than we give them credit for. Um, and, and of course, the, the greed grievance question would be, would any of these people have, have fought in Syria if they weren't being paid? I still can't strike the balance between how far, I, I know they're both, we all know they're both, but I can't strike the balance if you were to take that entire organizational structure that keeps it afloat, that keeps the ideology afloat, um, then what, what, what was to happen? But I do know that in 2007, let's say you, the Lebanese government at the time when March 14 was in control, they threatened two very key parts of the organizational structure of Hezbollah, so the intelligence and the control over the airport, which controls or the money flow. And what happens is that Hezbollah goes completely crazy. So this, I think this is a, was a very good sign as to if you were to take one very important element of that organizational structure, Hezbollah knows that it would be in danger because it disseminates the ideology through it. So, and Renat, in, in sort of counterpoint to that, these Iraqi groups, can they continue to, to make the money that they've made both from the state and from looting and, and other uh, pieces of the war economy, will they be able to still have enough money to, to grow and be powerful once the immediate war is, is over? Well, I mean, since 2014, when the, the committee of the PMU was established, one of its primary objectives was fundraising. That was one of the most important things. The, the, very famously, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, a senior leader, sent a, le a letter to Abadi saying, we need money. And since then, the prime minister has had to pay them. Um, a, few, uh, a few months ago, actually last month, 
um, when, when uh, there was the budget being negotiated in the Iraqi parliament, the Peshad-linked parliamentarians made a huge effort to make sure that something was given to their fighters as well, because they're technically outside of the armed forces. Um, and so there's, a, there's always discussions over funding from the state. And I think that from, from the power they have in parliament now, the political power they have, they're going to continue to have a source from the state. What you're also seeing is areas that they've liberated, areas that they're moving in towards, they're taking over a lot of these businesses, a lot of these trade routes, a lot of these kind of setting up checkpoints, for example. I mean, they're businessly minded because they know at the end of the day, as, as we've been saying in this discussion, ideology drives a fight if you have ISIS on your back door. But if ISIS is not there, how do you maintain a constituency? And to some extent, you need to convince them through, through these kind of incentives to, to remain loyal. To me, it's an ideological question. Like, if you're a militia leader and your goal is to take care of your followers, you know, to bring money to yourself and your followers, uh, unless you have an ideological commitment, why would you care whether you're doing this through a Saab al-Haq militia or through the Ministry of Defense or through some other formation that can give you a checkpoint to, to make money out of and uh, a way to distribute stuff to your followers. I mean, it's diversification, you know? I mean, if, if you, you have all sorts of businesses, public and private. I mean, it's a very successful economic model that they're trying to pursue. Have both formal and informal businesses. Have state and non-state businesses. Have the best of all worlds. Um, <laughs> and I guess that, and, and, mm -hmm. and that does put into stark relief the sort of secondary importance of ideology in, among some of these groups, because when you look at them, they don't seem to have much of a difference between them. Like the, among the different Hashid groups, okay, some are aligned with Iran and some are not, but in terms of what their vision for Iraqi society is, mm -hmm. is that right, that they're have, all basically the same? You have 50-some groups, right? If you're going to say that each one of those groups has a slightly different ideological or even issue-based uh, debate, would, would I think be farcical? I mean, clearly. But then it's not like some are secular and some are. They're all they're all, they're all Shia, Shia Islamist. Islamist groups. I mean, they have different ideas, for example, on the role of Iran, or they have different ideas on the role of the U.S. or the state versus non-state question. But I mean, those are small disputes. But there's a huge majority that fall within each camp. So many different groups within each camp. So who's to, why do you go from Badr to Assad, for example, or to Nujabat, for example? I mean, those kind of internal. Once you divide the camps up into the three or four camps you have within the Hashid. Within those camps, it's not necessarily ideological to go from one to the other. It's patronage, it's family, it's material incentives, it's all these structural um, reasons. Well, and as a test case, right, will we be able to look in five years' times at which of these groups have survived um, and which of them continue to have an ideological project as well as just a patronage project and maybe from that can conclude something about how to judge the relative importance of these things in from one organization to the to the next. Yeah, and, and another thing to, to to note, I think, that hasn't come up yet, is people like Hadi al-Amri or Sheikh Qais Khaz Ali, for example, they have changed these their are, discourse. These are major these militia are like leaders. These are the big leaders who, like, for example, a few years ago, Khaz Ali was saying, we need to avenge the death of Hussein by going to Mosul. Which but is very sectarian rhetoric. Very sectarian, very Shia, anti-Sunni. A few years later, right, when he's running in parliament, he's talking about we're all Iraqis and we all should be Iraqis. So even their discourse, they change it um, to suit their agendas. 
And I think Hezbollah does the same. I mean, depending on the kind of domestic and, and climate that exists. Uh, so during election period, they, they'd be mentioning the state a lot more. During the battles that were happening between Syria, the border of Syria and Lebanon and the north of Lebanon, um, they'd be talking about the, the prestige of the army and how is it that they collaborate with the army. And I think that was one of the things that they did so that they can actually change public opinion about what it is they were trying to do in Syria. So now they get to do their own business in Syria and control some of the areas there, but at the same time they're like, but we did promise you that we, were, we wanted to protect the border of Lebanon and we're going to do it with the help of the army because this was the ultimate goal of what we're doing in Syria, to divert attention away from what they're doing in, inside of Syria. Um, and, and now more than ever, they're, they're being more involved in assessing the economy, assessing what kind of foreign aid uh, that Lebanon gets. And, and I, I'm interested to see where that goes um, in terms of public opinion. Well, thank you both, uh, Sima Haddad and Renad Mansour, for joining me on the TCF World podcast. We look forward to decades more of conversations about greed versus grievance and idea versus uh, patronage and uh, militant movements. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.